Well, good afternoon, one and all. Uh, we're just uh, about to start, ready to start the webinar. I've got a few people still signing on, uh, probably getting back from lunch for those of you on Eastern or Central time. Um, I'm actually in California today, so I'm working from the West Coast, and uh, we'll be giving you this uh, seminar at 10:30 uh, um, a.m. on my time zone at this moment of time. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping notes as we go through this. Um, you have a question box on your screen. If you've got questions at any time during the seminar, go ahead, type them in there, and I'll do my best to address them at the end of the webinar. Um, we'll put them all together so that uh, we can answer as many as we can at the end of the uh, webinar. Also, a couple of other uh, things I want to uh, talk about before we get into the webinar. Uh, properly and as people are joining us, um, and that is a, a movement of the times of the webinar. Um, there's a few people in the central zone that have been unable to attend uh, because of lunch commitments, uh, so we're going to move our webinars back an hour. Uh, that's going to make them 2.30 Eastern Time, uh, 1.30 Central Time, and 11.30 uh, Pacific Time. Um, We'll have them finished in half an hour so that those of you out on the West Coast can uh, uh, still get to, to lunch at a reasonable time. Um, you'll see on the screen now the uh, seminars that are upcoming, the webinars that are upcoming. Uh, collision and Towers Liability on May 12th. Uh, Longshore Citus, which is the companion to, to this one, which is Longshore Status, will be June 2nd. Um, protection Indemnity, July 7th. Uh, some rules, pay, mods and payrolls on Longshore out on August 11th, and Understanding Mutuality on September 1st, and Stock Throughput on October 13th. Uh, we'll probably add some more, but that's the schedule so far. If you've missed any of the seminars so uh, to date, uh, we have them all archived on our website, and uh, you can see them all there. Uh, down on the bottom left-hand corner of our website is the archives. Um, and that's, that's also available for any of your colleagues who uh, perhaps couldn't make it today for any reason. Uh, this webinar will be uh, archived within a few days after the conclusion. Uh, in addition, we have just added a new podcast system. So uh, you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically get these webinars um, through iTunes. Uh, again, just on the bottom left-hand side of the uh, website of our main homepage, uh, you can click on that podcast and it will uh, tell you how to subscribe uh, to that. Okay, again, questions, put them in your questions box as we go along. Uh, today we're doing the first part of a two-part webinar series on CITES and status tests. Uh, for the Longshore and Harbour Workers' Compensation Act. Um, to be eligible for benefits under Longshore, you have to be in the right status, that is the right type of job, and also be in the right site as the right location. Uh, again, this webinar today is going to deal exclusively with status test. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will have questions about CITES, but we'll deal with that in, in that future webinar coming up in, in about 60 days. Um, as to where coverage applies. It really doesn't matter which way you do these two tests. Uh, you can do one first and then the other. 
um, or reverse them. It, it really doesn't matter which way around. And I have to be honest with you and tell you that I typically do the situs test first. I, I find that a simpler test. But the key to it is to keep these two tests separately. If you try and blend them in your mind, the type of job and the location simultaneously, you'll probably come up with the wrong answer. Um, it, it's much simpler to take one test, take that through its conclusion, am I in the right job or am I in the right location, and then come back and do the second test. Again, just to remind, if you fail one, you don't have to go and do the other one because you're out of longshore coverage. If you're not in the right job or in the right location, you cannot get longshore benefits. You've got to have both of these check off. You've got to pass both tests to be eligible for longshore benefits. So the status test, as it's called, comes directly out of the Act. It's in the definition section of the Longshore Act, and it walks us through who should be covered under longshore. I've got to caution you a bit before we start and say that this is run by the Department of Labor. So if there's a gray area or a question mark, it's nearly always going to fall on the side of the injured employee, uh, not on the side of the employer or, or, for that matter, the insurance company. So we're looking for words that match exactly to the various exclusions and definitions we're going to go through here. The introduction to the employee definition reads like this. The term employee means any person engaged in maritime employment, including any long, longshoreman or other person engaged in longshoring operations. Well, a longshoreman is somebody that loads or unloads a vessel. So another person they engage in longshoring operations is somebody who loads and unloads a vessel. It doesn't have to be an ocean-going ship. It could be something as small as a skiff. But if your job includes loading and unloading the vessel, you can be a longshoreman. Let me give you an, an idea of how far this has gone. A plumber was carrying on a new sink onto a boat to be taken out to an island to be installed in a house. Because he was carrying that sink aboard, he was loading the vessel with that sink. And even though he was the one offloading it and transporting it out to the island, he wasn't driving the boat. He was just purely a passenger on it. That was enough to make him considered to be a longshoreman, loading, doing perform, another person performing longshore operations. So far, the courts haven't taken it that if you're just carrying your own tools aboard, that's loading and unloading a vessel. But if there is a product in your hands, if there's a product on a cart, if there's a product in, literally on the back of your truck that you drive aboard a ferry boat, that could be enough to be loading and unloading the vessel. <coughs> Any harbour worker, that's somebody who might help tie up a ship or inspect a ship whilst it's in dock. A ship repairman, pretty obvious. A ship builder, again, pretty obvious. A ship breaker is a junkyard for ships. Back in 1926, when the Longshore Act started, those were the five professions that were the only ones that were covered. But then, back in 72, they changed it to say anybody in maritime employment, unless they're excluded. So the exclusions become the critical part of this. If we're going to say that anybody's not covered by Longshore, we have to fit them exactly into one of these exclusions that we're going to spend our next 25 minutes on.
The first one is individuals employed exclusively to perform office clerical, secretarial, security, or data processing work. Watch out for this word exclusively here. This means the job has to be only this particular job and cannot be any other job at the same time. So the person doing office duties, such as a bookkeeper, who goes down into the warehouse to collect invoices to pay her bills, is no longer exclusively office clerical. In fact, this word office has moved as well. The courts have considered that word office modifies all of the words afterwards. So if you read this in the way the courts are reading it today, it would be something like to perform office clerical, office secretarial, office security, or office data processing work. In fact, a couple of years ago, court case took security personnel who were working outside the office on a dock in a port facility and said they're longshoremen too because they were no longer office security. Quite frankly, what is office security? All right, if you're in an office building, clearly you may have somebody sitting there watching the security cameras. But if you're in a port or a waterfront premises, what's that security person's job? Even if the most of their time is in the office staring at some video monitors, if there's a problem, it's up to them to get out and address that problem. And that means they're no longer exclusively security. In fact, even when you get something that's, that fits these words exactly, it's tough to find that the courts will even give you status. Here you see two cases that were decided. Boone, Eileen Boone versus New Book New Shipbuilding at the bottom of the page. She was the, the bookkeeper who worked most of the time in the office but went down to the warehouse to collect the invoices off crates as they came in in a shipyard. Eileen Manzo versus Carnival Cruise Lines was an even more amazing decision but shows you just how far reaching sometimes the courts can get. She had the job of checking in cruise ship passengers. Yes, she, she was in a port, but she was in a, a warehouse type building, terminal type building, I suppose is a better description, where she would take, meet, greet each passenger, take their credit card, their ID, and issue them what is called an A card. It's their electronic room keys, it's their credit card so they can spend most of their money aboard. Um, it's the card very similar to the card that I received downstairs in this hotel yesterday when I checked in. She was clearly a clerical employee. There's no question about that. That job is as clerical as you can imagine. She's in an office type of environment. There were um, photocopiers, computers, a desk, albeit a standing desk, in front of her. But whilst the court said, yes, we understand this is a clerical employee, she was critical to the cruise ship operations. It was not somebody whose function was incidental to that, but they could not see how people would go on a cruise without the intervention of this job. And even though she was clerical and arguably in an office type of environment, the court concluded she was essential to cruising, Therefore, 
she was a longshoreman. Tough decision, but I think it illustrates well how broad these terms become in the eyes of the courts. The next exclusion is individuals employed by club, camp, recreational operation, restaurant, museum or retail outlet. A uh, club would be a non-profit type of club. Uh, it could be a yacht club, but a yacht club for the members' benefit, not a commercial yacht club. Uh, camp could be um, Boy Scout camp, youth camp, Girl Scout camp, something in that range. Uh, recreational operation will be like beach rental. Uh, you know how they uh, rent the pedalo type things or deck chairs or umbrellas on the beach. Uh, we'll come back to restaurants in a moment. Um, museum would include an aquarium. Uh, we have in Tampa, for example, the uh, aquarium of the, uh, sorry, the Florida Aquarium. Those employees are excluded from Longshore. Or a retail outlet. A uh, store on the waterfront would be excluded from Longshore. Um, but there's a court decision on that that says that only holds true if they are not selling something specifically for vessels. Uh, we may get them out elsewhere in that place, but um, it, it has to have something to do with the uh, water. So if they're selling T-shirts or uh, flip-flops, suntan oil, um, you're pretty safe that that's an excluded op operation. Um, but if they're selling, uh, let's say, winches or heavy rope, uh, you might have a different outcome. Uh, there's actually an argument going on at the moment whether um, uh, liquor sales are essential to maritime or not, uh, but I'll let you uh, work that one out yourself. I do want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the restaurant, though. Restaurant employees are excluded from Longshore, period. It doesn't matter what they do, where the restaurant is, how it operates, if it's a true restaurant, they're excluded from Longshore. But I want to ask, how many of you have been to a party on a boat, a catered party? Because many of you will have done that, and there are three different types of groups that could have catered that party. The first is a restaurant. Somebody who runs a restaurant on a daily basis, but occasionally goes on board a boat and does some catering, maybe for a wedding or a birthday party or something like that. And doing that work for the restaurant is a state act expo exposure because they're excluded from Longshore. The second group of people that could cater that party could be the vessel crew itself. And whilst this is not subject to this particular seminar, they would actually get admiralty benefits. It's part of their regular duties. They are aiding the mission of the vessel. And so they're going to get admiralty benefits. But there's a third group that could cater this party, and that's a catering company. Somebody that doesn't really have a restaurant-type premises that spends their time traveling from venue to venue, performing their services again at weddings or maybe birthday parties or anniversaries. There is no longshore exclusion for a catering operation. So if this is something they do on board vessels and sail with the vessel, they're likely to be longshoremen. This is really a great example of the insanity of this act. Here you have three groups of people 
doing entirely the same job, serving the same food, serving the same drink, doing the same type of cooking, but because of who employs them, it changes them from state to admiralty to longshore. Why should three groups of people doing the same job, earning probably the same amount of money, get three entirely different sets of benefits? That's the law. The next exclusion is for marinas, and before we really get into the exclusion itself, we've got to say, what is a marina? Now, there's no clear definition of this anywhere, but in talking to the Department of Labor, they're looking at people here who get their income predominantly from the storage of recreational boats. What does predominantly mean? Well, yes, 50% or more is probably a good guideline, but there isn't really a hard number here. What does storage mean? It could be in water, it could be on land, it could be in rack. It doesn't matter where that storage is. And again, recreational boats must be the majority of what's in this facility, not, not commercial boats. Now, could we have a few commercial boats? Absolutely. Could we do some repair and some sales? Absolutely. But the predominance of the income from marina has to come from storage of recreational boats. If we do more repair than storage, we become a boat yard. Um, despite the, the fact it might be called Joe's Marina on the top, if the repair is the predominance of our operation in the eyes of Longshore, we're a boat yard. And we'll talk about boat yards in a little while. But exclusion C is individuals employed by a marina. And I want to put a word in the act here, and that is directly employed by a marina. This doesn't apply to subcontractors, again, that they come under the boatyard type of uh, approach. Uh, this is direct employees of the marina. And who are not engaged in construction, replacement, or expansion of the marina, except for routine maintenance. So, if we're just a regular marina employee, we're not constructing, replacing, or expanding the marina, then we are a state act employee. We're exempt from longshore. If we engage in construction, replacement, or expansion of the marina, we're a longshoreman. So what's that in reality? Typically, if you're in the south of this country where we have marinas that run 24, oh, sorry, 12 months a year, mostly if you want to construct, replace, or expand the marina, you're going to bring in a subcontractor to do that, and they're going to be longshoremen. But in the north, in marinas that close down during the winter months, quite often those same marina employees who are working through the year are engaged in construction, replacement, or expansion of the marina in the spring or in the fall. What does that mean in reality? For most marinas that are not 12-month marinas, you need longshore coverage. If you have a 12-month marina, the question becomes, do you ever construct, replace, or expand the marina? If you subcontract that out, are you requiring longshore from your subcontractors? Because if not, you've got that exposure yourself. Just want to emphasize here, this is just marinas. This is not boatyards. There's a different exclusion for boatyards.
It doesn't matter if you are a marina, what size or type of vessel is in that marina. It's, again, as long as it's predominantly from the storage of recreational boats. Exclusion D is, according to Department of Labor, the most rarely granted exclusion, but the most often requested exclusion. It's suppliers, transporters, or vendors who are temporarily on a marine site and are not engaged in work normally performed by those employers. It's designed for the truck driver that comes along, puts his cargo down in the port, and then leaves again. It's designed for the soft drink delivery company that comes along, drops their product on the dock, and then leaves again. It's not part of their regular job. They're not doing it all the time. And all they're doing is delivering to the dock. Problem is, the soft drink company comes along, delivers its product to the dock, puts it on a a handcart to wheel it up the gangplank, suddenly they became a stevedore. They're loading and unloading that vessel and get longshore benefits. Unfortunately, one of our company claims was one where a soft drinks company did the right thing. They came along. They knew that uh, they did not have, to, they did not uh, load the vessel. They didn't want to get that type of longshore exposure. But the owner of the vessel said, there's a problem with the vending machine. Come along and fix it. So the delivery guy comes along, finds the vending machine has been jammed, opens the door to inspect the vending machine. At that moment of time, the vessel slightly tilts, and the, the machine falls down and squashes it. He was repairing the vessel. He'd become a ship repairman because repairing any part of the vessel is repairing the vessel itself. A couple of other examples of the line on this, the truck, truck driver comes into the port of Savannah, is loading a container directly onto a ship, he's late, so he drives up alongside to the ship. The crane comes down to pick up the container, he goes to the back of the container to throw the lever to release it, injures his back and successfully claims he was a longshoreman because he was directly involved in the loading and unloading process. That's a tough one. If he stopped at the port, the container had been taken off, set down for a while and then loaded, probably he would not have got the longshore benefits. But because he was directly loading it onto the ship, even though he never went aboard or even onto the gangplank, he was held to be a longshore. So for those of you that write trucking companies that are freelance, so they're going to go to a port sooner or later, it's a couple of things to do. Either give them at least some incidental longshore coverage or simply lock the drivers in the cabs. They're going to make this claim because the numbers are that much bigger if they win. I think one of the strangest examples of this exclusion failing was a pest control company. Pest control company went and sprayed cruise ships for little furry things running around. They said, we're a vendor, we're selling pest control services, we're temporarily on your premises, and clearly pest control is not a, the normal job of the cruise line. The court said, yet yeah, all that's true, sorry, Department of Labor said in this case, all that's true, 
but we don't think a lot of people would cruise around if there were lots of little furry things running around the ship, and therefore you're essential to the cruise ship business, therefore you're longshore. It's a long stretch, and it completely tramples the words of the Act, but I understand where they're coming from. Exclusion E is fish farmers. Uh, these are people that raise and cultivate seafood in a pinned, fenced, or controlled environment. Um, if you go out into the bay, throw a bunch of clams into the bay in general, come back six months later, or however long it takes a clam to raise to harvest them, um, that's not excluded. There has to be a pen, fence, pond, or some other separation uh, from the general water to make this exclusion stand up. The next exclusion is the one that changed in 2009. And I'm not even going to read this change to you. In fact, the, the words in red were taken out in 2009, and those italic words were added in 2009. But I like to think of this as in the way of this chart. This is for our boat yard, for our boat sales, boat repair, uh, for anybody that doesn't fit that marina definition that might work on, on uh, vessels. The first thing we have to do is try and work out, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, just recovering from a little bit of a cough. Um, first thing we have to work out what type of vessel it is. Is it a recreational or a commercial vessel? Now, if you were at the webinar a couple of months ago, we went through that definition in some detail, so I'm not going to do it again here today. But if you missed that webinar, um, really strongly suggest go back and uh, spend the 15 minutes to understand what is a recreational and commercial vessel under the eyes of the law today. If you're working on a commercial vessel of any variety, you're longshore. Uh, that's simple. That's how it has been for a long time. The definition of what a commercial vessel has changed a little bit um, in 2009 and again in 2012, um, but the current definition in, is pretty clear as to what is a commercial vessel. If you're working on a recreational vessel under 65 foot, again, your state workers comp, that's pretty clear. It doesn't matter what you do, so as long as it's under 65 foot, it's irrelevant what you do. The big issue is with larger recreational vessels, the mega yachts, the big houseboats that are out there. If you repair or service those vessels, you're under state workers' comp. But if you are involved in the building, construction, or manufacture of new boats, you're a longshoreman. Again, that is such an odd definition, uh, an odd change, an odd delineation between when you're a longshoreman and when you're not. Let me show you how bad it is. Let's assume you run a heating ventilation contractor. And you've got two jobs, one on an older boat to replace the HVAC system, and it's 70 foot long. <coughs> and the next is on a brand new boat, again, 70 foot long, to install a brand new air conditioning system. 
you can tell I live in Florida, I'm talking about air conditioning. Those of you up, up north think of heating systems the same way. If I do that on the new boat, I'm probably going to do it in course of construction. It's a lot easier to take care of it. It's a lot easier to see the paths I've got to use. I've probably got more space in new construction. And I'm doing it during the construction. I'd argue that's a slightly easier and safer job. The old boat, I'm having to pull out the old equipment. I may have to be dealing with more cramped and not so well constructed space. There may be rust or other issues in there. I would argue again that that's probably a tougher job. Yet the way the law's written, the tougher job is a state workers' comp exposure and the easier job is a long shot. That seems backwards to me, but unfortunately I can't tell you how I'd like it to be. I have to tell you how it is. And this is the way the law applies. My simple way of going through this is look at the type of vessel first. If I'm recreational under 65 foot, I'm state. If I'm commercial, I'm longshore. If I'm recreational under 65 foot, then am I in the service and repair or am I in the build, construct, manufacture? Take a pick, use the chart to determine longshore status here. This little catch-all phrase is actually further down, but it applies to the exclusions that we've just gone through. It says, if individuals describing clauses A through F, that's the ones we've just gone through, are subject to coverage under a state workers' compensation law. What does that mean? Well, it means if they don't have state workers' compensation coverage, then all those exclusions went bye-bye. That's a tough line to draw. And in fact, when you read the judge's bench book, the, the instructions to which the judges follow this, it's even tougher in the bench book. Simply, the federal government doesn't want anybody to go without benefits. So their idea is to say here, if you don't have state workers' comp coverage in force, and that's what the bench book says, so I can collect benefits, then you're going to be a longshoreman. In Florida, like many states, we say you don't have to buy longshore, sorry, workers' comp coverage if you have less than three employees. So a little two-man operation on Lake Okeechobee doesn't, decides they don't want to buy workers' compensation coverage. They just lost their longshore exclusion, and that's pretty bad. They come through all the fines and penalties and liabilities that we're going to talk about in the later seminar. A lot of people say, well, they're exempt from Longshore. No, they're not exempt from Longshore. It's only, in a, it's only if they have workers' comp do they keep that exemption. The last two exclusions are master and member of the crew of any vessel or any person engaged by master to load or unload or repair any small vessel under 18 tons net. Um, I have to say I've never seen this last one used. A lot of people try to use it. Um, these are our Jones Act or Admiralty exclusions. This means if you're a member of the crew, you cannot also get longshore benefits. 
Um, the failure on H most of the time is that the they get hired by somebody in the middle, uh, maybe by a shrimp dock or something like that. Uh, H only applies if they're hired directly by the vessel. And 18 tons is a pretty small vessel, so it's really not going to happen that much. As I say, I've never seen that, um, that particular exclusion used, but it is in the Act, so you need to know about it. Here's a list of just some types of businesses that have been considered longshore. Um, in fact, we have a list uh, in the office of over 100 different occupations that at some point of time have been longshore. So we started with five and um, we come up with a list of 100. This doesn't mean that if they're not on this list, they cannot be longshore, uh, nor does it mean if they're on this list, they're automatically longshore. But the only reason I give you this idea is to stretch your mind and say, it's not just five professions, it can be many, many more than that. There's a few more and another group there. I won't leave these up for very long. So again, questions on status, if you go ahead and type them into your uh, questions box now, I'll try and answer as many as I can as, uh, as time allows. We are running a little bit long today, but um, I can probably come and answer a few questions. Um, next, uh, coming up, uh, we have our Certified Marine Insurance Professional. I know Karen still has a few spaces left. Uh, we have insuring waterfront businesses and a graduate CMIP uh, going on. This is a, a live face-to-face uh, -face seminar, uh, April 20th and 21st in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, again, it's a double seminar. Uh, I know we've got well over 100 people attending this. So uh, if you want to get uh, into this seminar, please uh, go ahead and, and sign up now. And again, just to mention, uh, for those of you who signed on a little bit late, um, on the bottom left-hand corner of our main website, that's ligmarine.com, uh, we have archives of all these past webinars. And the latest, um, latest uh, addition to this is the podcast. Um, the subscription method there, just click on that podcast and it'll show you how to get to that event. Again, future webinars, I uh, went through this at the beginning, but just again to those of you who signed on late, uh, we're moving to a 2.30 time for Eastern, a 1.30 for Central, uh, 11.30 for Pacific time uh, for all the future webinars for this year. Uh, this allows our, our friends in Central time zone uh, to get their lunch and be back in time for the, the webinar at 1.30. Um, and uh, we'll get uh, our Pacific people out by noon or as close as we can as possible to that. Okay, so let's have a look at uh, some of the questions. Let me just open up the question box and go through there. Um, Rob, you've got uh, how to kind of get a printed copy of these slides. Uh, if you'll drop me an email, I'll be happy to send them to you. Um, we will again be posting this webinar so that you can um, replay this for any of your colleagues that you might want to. Uh, it should get posted sometime by the end of this week. Um, 
from Joe, anything under 65 foot is never longshore. No, no, no. Uh, any commercial vessel is automatically longshore. Um, it's only recreational vessels under 65 foot that are state act that are exempt. Um, so what could be a recreational vessel under 65 foot? Uh, I'm sorry, what could be a commercial vessel under 65 foot? Um, clearly a small towboat. Um, even if it's that, uh, like the, the boat US tow boats or towboat US, uh, the, the tow recreational vessels, they're certainly commercial vessels. Um, you see a lot of small vessels like pump out vessels going around. Um, we actually saw one recently that was an ice cream boat. It was literally a, a vendor had put a, the equivalent of an ice cream truck on a boat and he'd go down the beach and sell ice cream. Um, you can go down even to a small thing like a John boat that might be used by an engineer to go out and inspect a bridge, um, 12, 14 foot little skiff uh, type of arrangement. Uh, they're all commercial vessels. It's the use of the vessel, uh, not the size. Uh, Please confirm from Fred, please confirm that an exclusion is just for office clerical, office security, office security guard or office data processing. A security guard on the docks is not exempt. Correct, Fred. Uh, changed a couple of years ago. Um, you, you, before that, they, everybody thought security overall was exempt, uh, but there were in fact two cases on security. Uh, that showed that a security guard on a dock is a longshoreman. Uh, in fact, it doesn't even have to be away from the dock. Uh, right now, most people's considered opinion is that security who do just gate guard duty are not considered longshore. But as soon as you've stopped doing that, um, then you become a longshoreman. If you're in the right situs, and again, situs will do in... Um, Citus will do in a future webinar. Uh, Thompson, please review the restaurant provision. If you have a dinner boat, can you exclude kitchen and servers by having a catering subsidiary or a separate company? Um, no. If you're employing these people by the dinner boat, they're going to get admiralty benefits. Um, hiding them just using a subsidiary or separate company is not going to work. Um, they're going to look back at the um, the, the, the real exposure here. It's got to be a true catering company to, um, to get them into Longshore. Um, uh, only if you had a true restaurant uh, with a location uh, where the catering on board the boat was very occasionally um, very occasionally done would you get them back into State Act. Um, the Admiralty exclusion uh, sorry, the admiralty coverage would apply whether they are direct employees of the dinner boat or a catering company whose job it was to be on board the boat most of the time. Um, what's the test for whether, from Kevin, whether or not there are restaurant employees? Many restaurants have full catering operations but they have the catering employee. Uh, this, that's a tough one. The simple answer is who pays them? Um, it's going to be done on a case-to-case basis. Um, if they're employed, if they get a check from Fred's Catering, um, if their job is outside of the restaurant most of the time, uh, they're probably going to get longshore benefits. If they get paid by Fred's Restaurant and their job is, 
in the restaurant most of the time and just occasionally on a boat, uh, they're probably going to get state act benefits. This is very uh, specific here. Um, I've also wanted to say that you can't actually stop them bringing a claim in the way that they or their attorney um, feel is most appropriate. So even though we may sit here and say, oh, that person's not really applicable to longshore, um, then uh, that doesn't stop them trying to bring a longshore claim. And I think one of the most important points of having the longshore coverage is not only paying the claim, but also having somebody there to defend you uh, for, a, for a claim that may not be um, valid. Um, question, just a couple of time for a couple more, I'm afraid, then we're going to cut them short. Uh, what about, from uh, Linda, what about uh, construction workers constructing and building a pavilion or performing sewer work on port property? Uh, again, very, very narrow line here. Uh, the Department of Labor opinion is that if that building has anything to do with the storage or service of vessels, then they, the function is longshore. <coughs> if the building has no function with vessels, like an office, uh, then uh, it's not a longshore. Having said that, most of the time to get into port property, you're going to have to provide longshore evidence of coverage. Um, that's really all the time we have today. I'm sorry there's some extra questions that I've not had time to cover, cover um, but um, I'll try and answer those offline uh, once we've finished. Uh, we've run just a little bit long today, but uh, I want to thank everybody for attending. We had another sellout today. Uh, we tend to uh, we've sold out any one of these. So if you want to attend the future webinars, go ahead and sign up as soon as you can for those. And um, I'll look forward to talking to you at another webinar. Thank you very much for attending today. Bye.